Good morning, church. Oh, very happy Family Day weekend to all of you. I am glad that you've chosen to spend some time here with us. This is our church family, after all. Uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and, you know, in our family, uh, you know, whenever we had something important to discuss, we'd often have a family meeting. And as we come to our passage this morning, you can almost think of this passage in the same way. Uh, that Jesus has something important he wants to talk about to his church. Uh, something that I think, this is a topic that I think is still something that is a real struggle in the lives of many believers. As Jesus addresses the problem of compromise. Uh, and we hear about that as we come to the third church. A third church in the book of Revelation. As Jesus writes a letter to the church in Pergamum. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up. You can follow along with me to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Revelation 2, 12 to 17. And I'll just read it, with, and if you want to follow along, you can. Beginning of verse 12, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that, you might, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Father God, as we just prepare to open up your word again, we just ask that, Lord, you would be with us. Lord, you would send your Holy Spirit here uh, to dwell among us, uh, to lead us into truth, that, Lord, you would be the spirit of truth and that the teacher of truth, of this truth, to our hearts this morning. Uh, and, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open. And, Lord, this is... a uh, can be a tough subject, but Lord, it's a subject that I think affects many of our lives. And I pray that, Lord, if there's any blind spots, if there's any hidden things, that, Lord, you would just, through your spirit and your light, you would shine light on those things and help us as Christians to just put them on the altar and, and surrender them to you. Lord, I just, yeah, ask that you would be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love a story I heard that goes back to the days of sort of the Old West, uh, there's a family, rich family out in New York, uh, kind of thought they needed a change. So they decided they're going to buy a cattle farm out in California, the California way kind of thing. And they intended to, to raise cattle. Well, you know, they, they moved out West and got things started. And some friends from the city, uh, decided they were going to go for a visit and they were visiting the farm and they were getting shown around and they asked you know, have you named the ranch yet? All the ranches had fancy names, bar nuns, all that kind of stuff. Well, said the would-be cattleman, he says, um, here's the thing. I wanted to name it the Bar J Ranch. 
But my wife, she favored the Susie Q. My son liked the flying W, and my daughter wanted the lazy Y. So we came up with a compromise. We called the ranch the Bar J Susie Q Flying W Lazy Y Ranch. And his friend said, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a good name. Like, that's a nice handle. But, you know, where are all the cattle? To which the rancher replied, well, none of them survived the branding. <laughs> <laughs> and the moral of the story is that sometimes a little compromise can be a dangerous thing. And that's what brings us to our topic, our passage this morning, is Jesus writes to this church in Pergamum, about the dangers of compromise in some of their lives. Now, Pergamum was was considered one of sort of the three big cities in Asia Minor. Uh, It was, you know, always sort of in, in competition with Ephesus and Smyrna for that title of what's the best city, what's the best place to live, Uh, you know, all three of them kind of at times competed for that title of greatest city in Asia Minor. And, but whereas Ephesus had its wealth and Smyrna, as we heard last time, had its great beauty, Pergamum had something else that kind of set it apart. Because historically, Pergamum was the city of kings. Pergamum had a a really long history of being the capital city of one empire or another. It was a place of political influence. It was a place of power, a city of power. And even though Pergamum had lost its official title as capital city of Asia, which Rome had, you know, given to Ephesus just a few years earlier, it was still said to be a place that attracted men who were attracted to greatness. And maybe that's because just of the sheer amount of culture this city had. Pergamum as a city just had an air of distinction. Pergamum was a place that could offer sort of the upper crust of society, all of the finer things in life. It even kind of considered itself a rival for a place like Athens when it came to amenities. I mean, it had theaters, it had museums, art, music, temples, schools, academies, and it had a library that was the envy of the world. And to put that into perspective, Pergamum had the greatest library in all of Asia, and it was second only to the world-famous library in Alexandria. It had over 200,000 books and scrolls. That's an amazing number, especially when you, have to, you figure all of those things have to be handwritten on, on, on parchment. And in fact, the origin, this is something I learned, the origin of the word parchment comes directly from the name Pergamum because Pergamum actually invented parchment as a replacement for papyrus because they needed material to make more books. But even with all of that, there are a few more things that set Pergamum apart that you may need to know. The first was Pergamum was the location to this massive temple and altar to Zeus which was considered sort of one of the wonders of the ancient world at that time. Then this altar, this throne was placed at the highest place in the city. It overlooked sort of the whole place. And it depicted Zeus sitting on a throne. The second thing Pergamum had was it was the home to the Asclepius cult. Asclepius was considered to be a god of healing. 
Uh, it was said people from all over the Roman Empire would travel to Pergamum, to this cave that they had there, and they would visit this temple in hopes of being made well. And to just let you know what kind of influence it had, even to this day, the symbol of the god Asclepius, which is a snake wrapped around a staff, is still recognized as a medical symbol uh, in our world today. And then third, third thing about Pergamum is it had not just one, not just two, but it had actually three temples dedicated to emperor worship. And then, you know, we heard last time about Smyrna and how emperor worship had taken hold there. But if you imagine that, it, it was even more so now in Pergamum. In all of Asia Minor, emperor worship actually had the most influence in the city of Pergamum. And again, if you remember last time, that meant once a year, every citizen had to go to that temple, offer incense in the fire, and declare that Caesar is Lord, which made it very difficult for the Christians who believed that Jesus alone is Lord. But then finally, and perhaps in this case, most importantly for this church, Pergamum had the distinction of being where Satan himself had his throne. And now I don't, I don't think this was necessarily common knowledge to the people who lived in Pergamum. But as Jesus says to these believers in verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And when Jesus makes mention of the, you know, reference to that throne, some say he's actually referencing that, that throne of Zeus, of Zeus that the city was famous for. Um, there's others who think Jesus was referring to the Asclepius cult. I mean, after all, their, their symbol was a serpent. But I think you can actually take Jesus' words here literally. That Pergamum was the place that Satan had sort of set up his headquarters. Because remember, Satan is just a fallen angel. And as powerful as he is, as much influence as he has, that means he's still a finite being. He can't be everywhere at once. He can't even be two places at once. And what I think Jesus is saying to us here is that if Satan could be at work in only one place, he chose to be at work in Pergamum. The devil was giving this city, in particular, his personal attention. And I kind of found that interesting. Because, you know, when we think of places where we might find the devil at work, we probably think of, you know, the gutters, the places that reek of corruption and depravity, you know, strip clubs, casinos, brothels, places with high crime rates and illiteracy and all that. And yet Jesus tells us here, Satan is actually more at work in places where the politically and socially powerful people like to gather. That Satan is more likely to be found in, in our schools than he is in their slums. He's more likely to be among the powerful instead of the poor. Satan is more likely to be found at work in capital buildings than he is in our prisons. And I think the reason for that is that Satan doesn't really waste his time on the rank and file. He goes right for those at the top. And hear me when I say this. Education, learning, culture, and even government, those are not bad things. I'm not the kind of person that just sort of has a natural distrust of any of those institutions. And I think God can use those things for great good. But Satan also knows if he can corrupt those institutions, and if he can corrupt the, the influential and powerful people, he knows that society will soon follow. And that's perhaps why Satan's throne is in this very politically powerful city. But no matter what the reasoning for Satan being there, 
That made being a Christian in Pergamum a very, very difficult thing. Which Jesus adds as he goes into verse 13, still in verse 13, he says, Yet you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You know, just as those believers we heard about last time in Smyrna, the, the believers in this town were given a choice. And they chose to be faithful. And just like in Smyrna, that choice meant that these Christians would be faced with things like poverty and tribulation and persecution and even death for making that choice. Jesus even makes reference to a, to a martyr named Antipas. And all we really have to go on here is, is tradition, but Antipas was said to have been a leader in the church of Pergamum, and he was seized by officials for refusing to bow to Caesar, and he was roasted alive inside a bowl. They had a great big bronze bowl. It was hollow. And they put a person inside, locked them in, and put a, built a fire underneath it, and then just slowly cooked that person. It was a long and slow and painful death that is usually only sort of reserved for the worst of criminals, but that's what this city considered Christians to be. But even in the face of that, Jesus says this church remained faithful. Even in the face of persecution, the church in Pergamum refused to renounce the name of Jesus. Even when they faced death, they stayed loyal to Christ. When threatened, they didn't flee. When tested, they stayed true. When pressed, they didn't flinch. And even when the whole world seemed against them and Satan himself was taking aim at them, this church refused to deny Christ. And Jesus commends them for their perseverance. At least he commends most of them. Because as we see, while a majority of the believers in this church held true to the name of Christ, there were a few, there were some, who decided to take an easier path. As Jesus continues saying in verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And here's where the compromise comes in that we talked about before. You know, just as the old saying goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Here in Pergamum, many in the church, many of these Christians were doing exactly what the Pergamumites did. I'm not sure if that's the word. They, they, they were doing what the, the, the people around them were doing. Because, you know, I'm sure there were some in the church who were just tired of the hardship. Tired of the ridicule of being a Christian and not bowing down to Caesar like all the other people. You know, tired of seeing others get ahead when they were always left behind. They were tired of feeling different because they were Christians. And it probably began with thinking along the lines of, well, what's, what's, with the, what's the harm? I mean, as a Christians, we know that the idols are just lifeless blocks of stone to false gods. We, we know the temples, they're just buildings we know that Caesar is really just a man. He's not a really a God. We know that the words that we speak are just words. We don't really have to mean them. So why not say Caesar is Lord? Why not burn a little incense? Maybe we can cross our fingers behind our back when we do it. It'll all be okay. We just roll with it. After all, you know, why face death when one little white lie could save our lives? 
And it's only once a year. It's not hurting anybody. And it just makes life so much easier. I mean, it's 30 seconds of your time. And, and you can, you know, you can spend every other moment of the year serving God. So surely one little slip, it's not going to make a big difference in the big picture. And so some of these believers just, they went with the flow. They followed the crowd. They compromised with that thought of what's, what's the big deal? Because compromise can seem like such a great solution to your problems. But the results are often so much different than we think. Because one compromise often leads to another that leads to another. And before you know it, you're in a lot of trouble. Even as Jesus mentions in this passage, the engaging in sexual immorality and the eating of foods sacrificed to idols in verse 14. That means some of these Christians who were compromising were actually, had actually begun attending worship services at the pagan temples. They were going to the pagan feasts. They were indulging in pagan rites, even sleeping probably with the, pagan, with the temple prostitutes. And it all began with the assumption of what's the harm. And Christ actually, in describing this, he uses the analogy of Balaam here to describe what's happening. And for those who don't know, Balaam was a false prophet that we read about way back in the book of Numbers. The Israelites had been, you know, freed from slavery in Egypt and they were on their way marching towards the promised land. And as they approached the land of Moab, the king of Moab named Balak, he hired this false prophet Balaam to curse the Israelites. So he was a, he was a for-profit false prophet, if you will. That would look good on a business card. But if you know the story, God intervenes and Balaam can't do it. And there's a talking donkey and an angel with a sword and all kinds of stuff going on. But in the end, Balaam actually ends up blessing the people instead of cursing them. So Moab, who, who paid for the curse package, not the blessing package, he, he's pretty steamed. He's not happy because now there's like 600,000 angry Israelite men with swords ready to destroy his kingdom. But it's then that Balaam comes up with a plan that nearly destroys the people of Israel. Because he says to the king, you know what? Forget your army. What you need to do is you need to send out your most beautiful girls to meet those men with the finest of foods. Because if there's one thing and, you know, angry young men can't fight, it's a pretty face and a good meal. And that's what he does. And the young women, they go out and they meet the men and they lead the men of Israel astray from their faith and into idolatry. And this holy nation that God had called out of Egypt began to live in the exact same manner as, as the pagan nations that were so offensive to God. And that's an old story, but Jesus tells us here it's not a new strategy. As believers, we are always being pressed to compromise our faith. We are always being pressed to conform to the world around us. We are always being tempted to just go with the flow and take the easy way out. And I continue to think that even today, one of the biggest dangers that we face as believers is this idea that there are some acceptable sins. There's just some sins that we can commit that God just really isn't all that bothered by. He's good to look the other way. Safe sins, little white lies, little lapses in judgment that I'm sure God doesn't even notice. Little glances at all the wrong things, little gossips that we tell. 
And when we do those things, we often say to ourselves, what's the harm? And yet the result is that we as, as Christians, as a church, we, as people of God, we lose our distinctiveness. We lose our testimony. We lose our holiness as believers that is there to set us apart. And you know, sadly, even today, survey after survey, it continues to show in North America, there's almost no difference between the behavior of those who go to church and those who don't. We're almost exactly the same as the people around us. We read the same books, we go to the same movies, we watch the same TV shows. Believers cheat on their taxes, run red lights, and they even have the same divorce rates as unbelievers do. And that's the danger of compromise. And you'd think those believers in, in Pergamum who were, who were doing that, would, would, you'd think they would feel guilty, especially when they saw, you know, other people dying for, the, for remaining faithful. And they may have felt guilty, except for one more thing that Jesus mentions here. In verse 15, he says, So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now you see those Nicolaitans, we don't have a lot of information on them. It's only mentioned here really in the book of Revelation. But they were thought to be a sect that infiltrated the early church. And their message was a simple one. Their message was simply... You can live your life any way you want, and you can still be a good Christian. And the name itself actually gives us a clue. The name Nicolaitans is, is based on a Greek, the Greek word for victory. They were basically calling themselves the victory people. And the message that they, they proclaimed was, you know what? God wants you to be happy. God loves you, and he wants to forgive you. So you don't need to feel guilty. Just live the way, any way you want, and you can still sort of claim victory in Christ. It'll all take care of itself in the end. And they were, they were saying things like, you know, yeah, well, yeah, you're sinning, but you know what? The more you sin, the more God forgives you of your sin. So your sin is actually a good thing because it increases the amount of forgiveness in the world. And accepting, and accepting that kind of thinking, there were people in this church who turned their freedom in Christ into a license to sin and they did it without guilt and I think the scariest thing is that there were some people in this church who had convinced themselves that that's what normal Christianity was and remember not everyone in this church felt that way it was only a few it was only a couple but as we see Jesus has a very stern warning for the, the people who live like that as Jesus says, says to those people in uncertain, no uncertain terms, repent. Verse 16 says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. And you know, many people in this church may have convinced themselves that a little compromise was not a big thing. But Jesus reveals the truth. Compromise is the stuff of life or death for the believer. Jesus even says, I'm going to come and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And we actually kind of skipped over it earlier, but that's actually how Jesus introduces himself, you know, uh, to, the, to this church in the letter back in verse 12. He says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And there's two things I think that the sword represents here. The first is authority. 
Because in the Roman world, the power of the sword meant the power of life and death. In Rome, an official who was granted that power, it's like Innis Gladius or something like that, they had the power of the sword and they could, 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 they could pronounce a death sentence on somebody. That's what it meant. Jesus is saying he has that power. Jesus has authority over life and death because he holds the sword. But the sword is also a representation of the truth. The truth of God's word. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For, God, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So as much as some of these believers may have deceived themselves into thinking that the way they were living was okay with God, Jesus is about to come to them with the truth that said otherwise. And his words would be like a scalpel slicing away the cancer of sin from their lives. Because I want you to hear this clearly. It is not okay for believers to live in sin. Whether it's a big sin or little sin or any sin. It doesn't mean we're perfect. But it doesn't mean we stop trying. You know, Rick Warren put it like this. He says, there's not a single verse in the Bible, not one, that says you can be a Christian and live your life any old way you want to. It's not there. God wants all of you. He doesn't want 10%. He doesn't want 50% of you. He doesn't want 99% of you. He wants all of you. And even though there's always going to be people who try to sit on the fence, you simply can't have it both ways. The truth is we have to get serious about sin. You know, just as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out of your head. Does anyone there think Jesus doesn't sound serious about sin? And you know, I know this sermon is probably speaking to some here today. I know that because I know it's speaking to me. I know there's areas of my own life where I'm probably just not careful enough when it comes to holiness. And for many of us this morning, it might be gut check time. But if you know you've been living a life of compromise... If you've become too familiar with the world, if you know today you've been living in a way that is not pleasing to God and there's stuff in your life you know you need to get rid of, then you need to hear that there's no better way to get back on track than to get on your knees and to repent. And you know what? No matter what you've done or how far you've fallen, God is ready to show you mercy and he's ready to forgive you all over again if you're ready to come to him. Confess those areas of your life where you've let slip and just begin living a new life that pleases God. Make a change. Live without compromise because that's all repentance really is. Repentance is turning around. It's making a change. It's choosing a new direction to go in in your life. It's turning from sin and heading back to Christ. And Jesus says, repent. Confess your sin Make a change and get your life back on track towards holiness. Because for those who do that, those who do overcome, you know, Christ has something amazing in store for us. Verse 17. 
Jesus says, him who, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus says there is a promise to those who make this, this decision, make this dedication. For those who walk the faithful path, great things are in store. And again, I think we need to hear that as Christians because we know being a Christian is not always easy and sin tempts us at every turn, but we need to keep in mind that the promises, the promises of Jesus are so much more than sin. The empty promises of sin could ever offer us. And Jesus mentions three promises here in this verse that are in store for his people. The first, he says, we will receive some of the hidden manna. And to me, this is really a promise of eternal life with Christ. It is a picture of both fellowship, the breaking of bread, and foreverness with Jesus. And I actually think it goes back to the words of Jesus in John 6, beginning verse 7, or 47, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. I think the hidden manna is Christ himself. And it's the promise of eternity with him in fellowship. And then the second promise that we are made is the gift of a white stone. And you may be thinking like, what am I going to do with a rock like in heaven? Like it's just... And there's some debate about what this actually means, but I think the one that makes most sense was that at the time this letter was written, when a jury was judging the guilt or the innocence of a person, they voted using colored stones. Black for guilty and white for innocent. So here, I think in the form of a white stone, Jesus is giving us the promise of forgiveness. You know, just as it says, Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A white stone is a picture of our righteousness in Christ Jesus. And then finally, we're told we will be given a new name. And you know, there's times in the Bible when God does give people new names. Uh, he takes Abram, he changes his name to Abraham, which means the father of nations. He changes Jacob's name to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. He takes Simon and starts calling him Peter, which means rock. And you realize that every time God changes a person's name, he does it to better reflect the person that he is becoming in his relationship with God. So when we are given a new name, it's a reflection of who we are becoming in Christ. And we're told here it's a name so personal that it perfectly describes all that you are and all that you ever hope to be in Christ. It's the name that you were created to discover. And notice too, it's a name that's only known by God and the person who bears it. Because I think only God knows us well enough to give you this name. Because it's a name just like you, shaped by the creator. And there's incredible intimacy, I think, here in being so well known by God that he gives you a special name. And those are the blessings, the promises 
that Jesus gives to those who conquer, those who overcome. It's eternal life and fellowship with Christ. It's a declaration of our righteousness. And it's an intimate relationship of belonging and being known by God. And those are the promises we need to take hold of to find victory. Because you know what? Again, we break the power of sin by taking hold of the greatness of Jesus. I actually like the way John Piper put it. He says, sin has no power for those who are fully satisfied in Christ. And I know that this world is still a hard place to be called a Christian. It's still a hard place to remain true to the name of Jesus. And yet, we need to take our stand. Just as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We need to be proud of who we are in Christ. And live proudly and unashamed for him. Because you know what? I know in a few minutes, we're going to be gathering up. We're going to be walking out the doors, getting in our cars. We're going to drive back to our everyday lives. Back to our homes. Back to our friends. Back to our jobs on Monday. And the question I want to leave you with this morning is simply, how are you going to live when you get there? Because you know what? In every area of our life, we must consciously and actively answer that question. We must choose to reject compromise and follow God. We must choose to live by a different set of standards. It's a choice not to sell out our faith for any price. It's a choice to live for Christ in all that we do. We must make a choice not to deny our Lord, but instead hold fast to his name and hold fast to his truth. It's a choice of repenting of sin and instead seeking Christ and his holiness. Because a Christian life is a life that is to be lived without compromise. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to this, um, this passage, Lord, I just... <laughs> This church in Pergamum, I think, is a church that far too many of us sort of relate with in our, in our own lives as we, as we look at them. You know, that spirit of compromise, that ability to just to kind of overlook sin in our lives and just be okay with it. And Lord, we realize that you died to forgive us of our sins and that, Lord, you were raised to new life with the promise of victory over sin. And your call to us is to be a holy people. Not people who just go with the crowd. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, even this morning, in this moment, that, Lord, you would examine our hearts. Because, Lord, I know sin, especially when we're casual with it, it can be easy to overlook. It can be easy to get comfortable with it and start not even to notice it anymore. Lord, it can be easy to be blind to it and even be, be, to begin to rationalize it and think that it's all just okay. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal it to us this, at this time and show us the places in our lives where we need to deal with sin. And that, Lord, in doing so, that, Lord, we would repent and that, Lord, we would move in a new direction with new strength that comes from you. And that, Lord, we would hold fast. Not to that commitment, Lord, but to the hope that we have. That that hope we have in Christ would drag us forward towards heaven with a new purpose. 
Because, Lord, we know that the promises that you make are faithful, but the promises of sin are just empty and lead us to nothing but ruin. And, Lord, I pray that your truth would overcome the lies that the world tells us. I pray that the joy that we find in you would would overcome the, the momentary pleasures of sin that so often we seek in our life. And I pray that, Lord, the hope that we have in you would just reveal the empty promises of sin. And that, Lord, in all of these things, we would be a church that holds fast to your name. And that, Lord, when we don't, Lord, we will repent of our sins and hurry back to you. Because, Lord, you have called us not to be people of compromise, but to be a holy people. And I pray that, that, Lord, that would be our dedication to you. In Jesus' name, amen.